you, you never think I'm funny, so I always hesitate to refer to a comedian in my open illustration. But, <clears throat> but John Mulaney is a hilarious, um, albeit sometimes inappropriate, comedian that has this hilarious bit on how he believes that robots are running the world. Uh, and especially annoying to him, and my guess is to you as well, uh, are those password verification tests that pop up whenever you're trying to log into one of your favorite websites. <clears throat> and in the midst of his rant about these things, he pops off something of a poem, a lyrical poem, and he says, ah, I smell a robot. Prove, prove, prove to me that you're not a robot. Look at these curvy letters, much curvier than most letters, wouldn't you say? No robot could ever read these. You look mortal, if ye be. You look and then you type what you think you see. Is it an E or is it a 3? It's up to ye. The passwords of the past, you've correctly guessed, but now it's time for the robot test. I've devised a question no robot could ever answer. Which of these pictures does not have a stop sign in it? Oh, you did think that was funny. That helps. He finishes, the, he finishes the whole bit by saying, you spend a solid chunk of your lives trying to convince a robot that you're not a robot. Think about that for two minutes and then tell me you don't want to walk into the ocean. Um, the bottom line is we hate the mechanics of verification, do we not? But at the same time, we can't live without it. Because if there's anything that we've embraced in this world, it's that you can't believe everything that you read or everything that you see on TV or the Internet. People lie. And so finding ways to verify what someone's claiming on your behalf, you know, give us your password and, we'll, and, and log in and we'll, we'll fix your computer. That's just essential to living in a fallen world, is it not? Well, as it turns out, the questions surrounding verification were important to the Apostle Paul as well. You say whatever you want about the Apostle Paul. He is not afraid of your hard questions. And Romans 9 has unsettled many a reader for a variety of reasons, not the least of which has scholars wondering why in the world these chapters are in the book of Romans in the first place. There are those that would say that Romans 8 was really where the ending of Paul's unpacking of the gospel really was. And so now Paul is kind of turning to a tangential question about ethnic Jews. So that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are really just this uh, parenthesis topic before he gets to the application of the gospel in chapters 12 through 16. Um, I have begun to believe that actually people who say that are not really paying attention to the larger structure of Romans. Look, remember, at the end of Romans 8, Paul has unpacked this avalanche of confidence that every believing person can have in this unbreakable chain of salvation. Remember, in chapter 8, verse 30, he said, And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, like we talked about last week, when God calls someone, he brings them all the way home. He does all that needs to be done. But you can imagine that there is someone who pulls out an objection. It's a big one. And it's asking for verification. How can I know what Paul is saying is true? And honestly, the question is a bit of a puzzler. Because he says this. Okay, wait a minute, Paul. You've got all this confidence in God. But what about the Jewish people? I mean, they were called by God. 
And now it seems that they've rejected him, that God's rejected them for the Gentiles. It sounds to me like being called is not enough. Maybe I can't really count on God taking me all the way home, as you've said. You see how big this is. Paul is still entertaining an assurance question. Can I trust God's purpose in my life and build my confidence on it? And the answer that Paul gives to this is going to take us deep into the purposes of God for not only how we're to understand how God dealt with Old Testament believing uh, people of God, but also what it has to do with our confidence that we can trust his gospel. So when look at this, I want to entertain three questions this morning. The first one is a question about Jews. Secondly, a question about election. And then thirdly, a question about faith. First, it's this question about Jews. Look, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is explaining how emotionally compromised he is by this topic. In verse 2, he says that he is in outright agony about his own native people by the fact that by every reasonable measure, they are actively rejecting the gospel. And of course, Paul should know, right? If you remember last fall when we were studying Acts, we saw that it was his habit to go into Jewish synagogues uh, where he was church planting first. Well, needless to say, those efforts were largely fruitless, especially compared to his reception among non-Jews, the Gentile people. And then in verse 3, you hear him say something that's really extraordinary. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow. Now look, that's an impossible request, of course, but I hope that the spirit of it sounds kind of familiar. Remember, Moses did this actually all the way back in Exodus 32, 32, where he asked God to blot him out of his book in order to save the rest of the Jewish people. I think what we take away from that is, is that the closer you get to this God, the more willing you are to offer yourself up for others so that they can get what they don't deserve. Hold that thought. Should sound familiar to us. Okay, but back to the original question. If God chose the Jews to be his special people, how is it possible that they reject Jesus? Did the promise that God made to Abraham so long ago somehow fail? Look at verse 6 then. Paul says, It is not as though the word of God had failed, for, here's his explanation, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, Paul is saying something that, let's be honest, was very hard for a Jewish person to hear. Because he's saying, look, the privilege of your ethnicity doesn't mean a hill of beans in God's economy. I mean, look at that list that they go through in verse 4. They have the adoption. They have the glory. They have the covenants. They got the law, the promises. The Jews had all this advantage. But Paul is coming along and saying, but God doesn't work that way. Just because you have Jewish blood flowing through your veins does not make salvation by grace through faith any less true. I've actually begun to notice this spirit is probably in all of our hearts, is it not? Think about this for a moment. Have you ever been in a discussion with someone, maybe heated, and in the midst of it, they insulted you? And somewhere in the back of your mind, you're convinced they are beneath me. And you look at them and you say, don't you know who I am? Now, maybe you didn't say it, but have you ever thought it? Someone was beneath you? 
What Paul is preaching about through the entirety of the book of Romans is that very instinct. And so Paul is saying, look, it's very profound. He says, look, you've got to define Israel properly. Just because you were born into Israel doesn't mean that you are the true Israel that God is working through. Yes, Abraham received the covenant, but Abraham also had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But only one of those sons was the child of promise. Look at verse 7. He says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So by the way, it's a quote from Genesis 21, 12. What Paul is saying is, is that there has never been any other way into favor with God other than by faith alone. Your privilege means nothing here. Okay. Now, if you're paying attention, there is a second question that has popped into your head, which goes like this. Okay. Well, why would God do that? Why choose between Ishmael and Isaac? Or why choose between Esau and Jacob, for that matter? Or, or Joseph and his brothers? Whatever. And the answer to that question is going to push us, push us very deep into God's character. And the second question. We've seen a question about Jews. But secondly, though, we need to see a question about election. Okay, verses 9 through 13, what we see is, is we see the ultimate reason why God picked Jacob over his brother. Who, by the way, should have been the child of promise in that particular culture. The older was always the recipient of all the father's blessings. But what it says in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In other words, what, say, what, what Paul is saying is, that God did not pick the younger brother over the older because there was something good about him. Paul's even so bold as to quote from Malachi chapter 1 that says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What? Hated? Now look, before you freak out, don't read something into that word that's not there. The Hebrew word we have translated hated is actually more about avoidance than it is actual wrath. I want to remind you of that time when Jesus told his disciples in uh, Luke, um, Luke 14, 26, where he looks and says, look, no one can follow me unless they hate their mother and their father and their brothers and sisters. Remember that? That word there that's translated in that way simply doesn't mean an active disdain of your family, but simply that your commitment to Jesus should be so powerful that it makes every other commitment in your life look like hate in comparison. So it's the dramatic comparison he's making there. All right. Anybody satisfied with that explanation? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Because it looks like God's being arbitrary in who he chooses. And if, you're, if it's arbitrary, it's unjust. And so Paul actually takes it head on in verse 14. Is there injustice in God? And in verse 16, I think you really get to the hinge of the whole chapter when he says this. So then, it, human salvation that is, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's where we need to camp out on for a moment, that word mercy. One commentator put it this way. He said, mercy, by its very definition, can never be an obligation. To say that mercy is unfair is to say that mercy is owed to all. But a mercy is undeserved and thus totally free. To say it's unfair for God only to have mercy on some is a self-contradictory statement. Paul is reasoning, are you saying that God 
owes anyone salvation? Of course not. Look, this is so crucial. And, and, and in many ways, it's the first mindset that you have to adopt before you start thinking about the doctrine of election. And it reminded me of an illustration that uh, uh, the late D. James Kennedy used to give when he was talking about this topic. He said, imagine you're at some friend's house and four of your best friends decide that they're going to go rob a bank. And uh, you try and try to talk them out of it. You plead with them not to do so, but they charge for the door. Well, on their way out, you're able to tackle and uh, restrain one of them while the other three go and finish the job. Well, the robbery is completely unsuccessful. A guard ends up getting killed, your friends are arrested, and they're tried in a court of law. And the man, though, that you tackled, he goes free. Here's the question. Whose fault is it that the men are condemned? And the answer is all of their, it's all their own. But what about the man that you tackled? Can he say, well, the reason that I'm not condemned is because I'm better or because I'm so good? No, the only reason why he's free is because of you, because you restrained him. What's the point? The point is be really careful when you're thinking through the doctrine of election that you don't frame human beings as if we are somehow innocent parties in the conversation. Go back to chapter 3 of Romans. We are not. My friend uh, Brian Habig actually I thought has a great uh, illustration on this I heard him preach a number of years ago when he was talking about the summer of war against his uh, backyard <laughs> he goes to war against his backyard and apparently back in towards the back of his yard there was an old dog pen uh, that he was removing even down to this concrete slab that existed there leaving just the uh, empty dirt behind then he ignored it for the rest of the summer <laughs> and he said you can imagine what happened to that little piece of ground by the end of the summer it was loaded up with weeds so Brian says, well, you could, active, you could say in a real true way that I actively grew weeds throughout the summer. How did I do that? I did it by doing nothing. I cultivated weeds by actively letting the weeds grow. Here's his point. This is the manner of God's dealing with rebellious souls. He simply allows them to do what they would naturally do if grace had not intervened. That's the doctrine, which also is why he brings up the topic of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Makes the case perfectly there, right? It's a very interesting feature about the story of Pharaoh and the ten plagues. You remember this story? You loved it as a child. In the first five of the ten plagues, after each of those plagues, Pharaoh says something interesting. It says something interesting about Pharaoh, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But if you read very carefully, in the last five plagues, after each one of the plague, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What? <laughs> Why in the world would God do that? What is that about? Well, look, the key to understanding this is by the time you get to that part in the story, the e evil that Pharaoh was inflicting on the Jewish people ha had become monstrously evil. And so God began to take measures to allow evil to do what it will always do when it's left completely unrestrained. And you know what that is? It destroys itself. That's what evil does. Pharaoh was determined to resist God's will. And it is as if God looked and said, fine, 
then in order to execute judgment on you, Pharaoh, I am going to push you where you already want to go. And in your destruction, there will be freedom for my people. It's a chilling passage, quite honestly. But it's exactly why Paul says in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Question of mercy. We still have one more question to answer, do we not? Because I'm guessing you're still not satisfied. Which is why in verse 19 Paul asks this question. Well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You hear the rationale? Okay, look, theology boy, God is God, right? He's the one who conditions all things. No one resists his will. God is the one who sets the table for reality itself. How can he find fault in something that he created? There ought to be a little bit of encouragement in you, at least on some regard, uh, from this passage that like Paul is not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid to deal head-on with difficult, hard, philosophical objections. <laughs> it's the answer that you're not going to like. So here it is in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now look, don't read this as Paul getting defensive. <laughs> Think, think about that voice that you have with your children when they get, I don't know, outrageously disobedient or something like that. Don't you talk to me like that. You better watch your mouth, mister. It's as if Paul is saying, like, don't you talk back to God. Who are you, oh man? It's not what he's saying. I used to think that growing up, that he was just he got defensive about it. I actually think Paul is saying something so much more profound. What he's saying is this question that you have, this, this little glimpse that you want to get over the edge and into the eternal mind of God. To understand without question about why he does what he does. That question is not just above your pay grade. It is equally above your reality grade. Because the distance in quality between God and me is so great, Paul is saying. That even if God were to explain his eternal purposes to me, I'm not convinced that I would even understand it. Or it would make the first bit of sense to me. He's told me what I need to know. It did remind me of um, Ginger and I trying to, uh, to adjust to having a boy in the house after we had two girls first. A little bit of adjustment. And when Luke was uh, about two years old, I remember uh, uh, sort of uh, walking into the kitchen, hearing a bit of a commotion. And I found somehow that he had ingeniously found a way to get up to the counter and find a very large knife. Adventures in quality parenting was this moment. Ginger wasn't in the house. I was there to keep the kids, right? So Luke's got a knife. And he's waving it around, fighting a bunch of, um, you know, uh, uh, unknown bad guys, right? Invisible bad guys. Well, of course, I snatched it out of his hand. I probably swatted him or something like that. And I was like, Luke, don't ever play with that knife. And I had this vivid picture of the look on Luke's face at two years old that seemed to look at me and say, you arbitrary and capricious old man. Do you not understand the joy that that knife was bringing me? Don't you see how much that meant to me? 
Now, let's say for the sake of illustration that I decide to have compassion on my two-year-old son. I'm kind of like, okay, Luke, let's start from the beginning. You see, on the inside of your body, you have these things called veins. And pumping through those veins is this stuff called blood. And that blood, it feeds your organs, it helps you go, it feeds your brain. And of course, the serrated knife that you have, if it ever cuts you, that could bleed out and you could do a serious harm to yourself. He's two. What is he going to understand about that? In other words, in that moment, the distance between my two-year-old's intellect and mine is so great that even if I explained it to him, it wouldn't have made any sense. That's why Paul is saying in verse 20, the distance between your intellect and God's is so great that even if I were to explain it to you, it would make no sense at all. By the way, You and I are the two-year-old in that illustration, if you didn't miss it. But of course, as it turns out, that's the one thing we don't want to admit to whenever we're talking about the God's election. So there's a question about the Jews. There's a question about election. Finally, though, there's a question about faith. Because you can't wrap this up without looking at how Paul ends the chapter. And the last question he asks is a summary uh, question in verse 30. Look what it says. What shall we say then? In other words, he's about to give you the big picture of everything he's been outlining. And what he's been outlining is this, is this inexplicable paradox to the Jewish people. The non-Jewish people, somehow they've attained to the righteousness of God. But the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, even though they have the law, haven't obtained it. How can that possibly be? Why? Look at verse 32 is the answer. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's the big picture. Look, what is it that is deep in the mind of God when it comes to our salvation? Seriously, what is it that's in his mind? You ready? Here it is. At least this is what he's revealed to us. In his mind is this fact that only a salvation that is by faith and not by hoop jumping. That's in the mind of God. This is the entirety of the reason why when you go back to the Old Testament and you see these stories in the context of ancient Near Eastern culture, You see that God is always looking to the outcast. He's always bringing about salvation for the marginalized. He's always going to the disenfranchised. He's going to pick the younger, non-privileged brother over the older. He's going for the sexually marginalized and the prostitutes. In other words, all of these choices that God is making in the Old Testament to pursue his people are constantly overturning the categories of privilege that were inherent in ancient Near Eastern times. The older shall serve the younger? No. What? What? How can that be? You ready for this? Because there is no meritocracy in God's economy. That is the big picture. So here's the deal. God is saying salvation is going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, or it is going to be Nothing. That's at the heartbeat of God's thinking. But be honest, we are so, <laughs> we're so offended by this doctrine, and I get it. And our objections start flooding in as soon as we dive into it. But I want to follow up on what I started last week on this one simple, let's be honest, an emotional appeal to you for the doctrine. Because I still argue, like we said last week, that every one of us longs for a love that is its own rationale. A love that is its own rationale. 
A lot of us have, have gotten very upset at this topic of the doctrine of election. But I always want to think to myself, what about the alternative? You ever thought about that? Seriously, play a little mental game for, your, for yourself in a moment. If this morning you fancy yourself a Christian, okay? You, you, you believe yourself to have obtained mercy from God. Let me ask you this question. Why? Why do you think you've obtained mercy? Well, because I believed in Jesus. Okay. Why did you believe in Jesus? Well, because I heard his call. Okay. Why did you hear his call? Well, because I humbled myself. Okay. Why did you humble yourself? Still many others here, and they don't. Look, if you follow this all the way down, you begin to realize that there are only two options. Either it was something deep, deep down in us that caused our salvation, or it was something deep, deep into the heart and mind of God that caused our salvation. And if the answer is the former, we're ultimately saying that in the end, I am a Christian because I am better. The gospel doesn't lead us in that direction. It just doesn't. That can't be. Look, think of it this way. Today is Mother's Day. And I find myself thinking back to the time in which Ginger and I first found out that we were expecting. We were expecting. We were definitely expecting, but she was the one that was pregnant. Men love to throw themselves in that equation. Do we not? We were expecting. She's like, we. But the first child is always the weirdest, right? It's the weirdest experience. <clears throat> and Ginger and I had very different experiences of that whole thing. And I remember especially when times that she would direct my attention to movement inside of her stomach, right? She looked at me, she's like, oh, that's a foot. I can see it. And I would look over and watch some lump go across her belly, and I would get nauseated. <laughs> it's the grossest thing I've ever seen. What is happening in you? That's awful. Ah. It was funny by contrast because of her reaction. Because I could always watch this grin come across Ginger's face. And it took me a couple months to realize what was happening. Ginger was falling in love. But here's the crazy thing. <laughs> she never met the child. She didn't know if it was a man child or a she child. She didn't know if the child was going to be pleasant or unruly. She didn't know if the child would be intelligent or not. All she knew in that moment was that she loved that child. Before they ever did anything right or wrong, she loved it. That is what God is telling us in the doctrine of election. And I know we've got questions. You've got questions about, wow, what does this do to the doctrine of evangelism? What do we do about evangelism? Well, you know what? We're going to talk about that next week. Stay tuned. Come back next week. Others are like, well, I don't know, but what if I'm not one of the elect? What if I'm out no matter what I do? But look, the other promises are still true. Nothing has changed in the fact that God comes to you with a message and that message says you are helpless and hopeless in your sin. But you know what? There's a glorious and wonderful Savior who has offered himself to you. Repent and believe the gospel. That is still true. Paul unpacks the doctrine of election because he's trying to sort of find a way to transform this ordinary Christianity that we're all sick with with this simple knowledge I want to introduce you to a love that will not let you go because it's born in the eternal mind of God.
There is no higher security. There's no higher grace than what you get there. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it, even as we sing together those very words, that there is indeed a love that will not let me go. Would you give us the grace to be able to accept it? Father, to realize that as we look over trying to question your, your revelation to us, we do so as little children. You said, Lord, in Deuteronomy 29, that there are secret things that belong to you. But the things that you have given are for us, for our salvation, and for our children. And so, Father, we cling to those this morning while thanking you for your word in Romans 9. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.